there's so much opportunity in tech right now. It's unbelievable. So if you know how to build a company or you can figure it out, which most people can, you get in, it's a puzzle, you don't give up, you just hustle. Then in that aspect, there's a lot of opportunity. This is episode 131 of the Powder Cake Podcast, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today I have a very special conversation that I had this past December with PJ Tai, who's from Washington, D.C. PJ is the founder and president of Uscreen, a video on-demand company that helps people launch their own apps and online video streaming service. This is a relevant conversation. It was relevant when I recorded it back in December. It might be even more relevant now because we talk a lot about video. We talk about how businesses can be using video and the future of all things video. I'm recording this video uh, here on April 1st, 2020. So we're almost three weeks into social distancing as part of this global pandemic and the coronavirus. I've spent hundreds of hours already on video. I'm sure you have as well. So you see the direction this is going. So many companies are trying to figure out video right now. And PJ is a serial entrepreneur and an expert in video streaming and monetization. And he started his career as an network technician and founded a company called WebNet Hosting, which he built for 14 years until it was acquired in 2016. But that's when he shifted his focus to Uscreen. He kind of uncovered a big opportunity, and we talk about it here on the show. Their platform is now home to over 5,000 video creators, and it enables them to monetize their passions from education to fitness to yoga and so much more. Hope you enjoy this conversation and you learn a lot out of it. Uh, please feel free to uh, share what you learn with me on Twitter or on Instagram. I'm just at Hunkler, H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R. Would love to hear from you. And... Uh, Here's PJ. How old were you when you moved to the DC area? Yeah, so I was uh, originally, so I grew up in Maryland. I was seven. And then I lived in Arlington for a while because we're in a tri-state area. And our mm -hmm. uh, office is now in uh, DC, pretty central near DuPont Circle. I think we've had our U-Screen office here because most of our team is remote. It's just me, the CTO, and our marketing leads, so our management team. We've been here about three years now, three and a half years. We're in a WeWork. Nice, nice. Very cool. We, um, we are also office out of a co-working space here in Indianapolis called uh, Industrious. And I think they've got some great locations up there in uh, DC too. Um, oh, nice. I'll check that out. I've never heard of them. Yeah. They're, oh, they're fantastic. We, we like them a lot. Um, but certainly WeWork has some great spaces too. Um, but I'm eager to hear about your career um, and just learn a little bit more about how you navigated tech and also the big opportunity you're seeing right now in video. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your earliest memories of technology and, uh, and even a lot of times I find that the entrepreneurs in, in particular get bitten by that entrepreneurial bug early on, uh, even before they start their career. Was that the case for you? Yeah, that's interesting. They say that. Well, I absolutely have, um, a pretty good experience with technology early on primarily because of my dad, he was doing computer sales. Um, mm. he worked for a company in Arlington doing computer sales. So I was about, 12, 13, I think when I saw my first computer, it was an HP, um, just big keyboard and just very heavy tower. It was actually a desktop tower. 
Um, and then my, I was lucky because my dad was reselling computers. So he started to bring in, because he would custom build machines, right? Mm -hmm. No one does custom build right now, unless you have a gaming or something like that. But I would actually put together the motherboard, hard drives, put the RAM in and all that stuff. I did that with my dad. I probably built, honestly, no exaggeration, a few hundred wow. uh, desktop machines over time, towers and desktops. Um, and this was in the 90s. And so that gave me experience early on with uh, computers. What did you like most about that experience? Or did you like doing it at the time? Yeah, since I didn't actually like it, I was in my early <laughs> teens, 13, 14 years old. And um, I always liked hardware. I've always been technical, but I didn't like it too much because my dad's office, um, and I always told myself, I was like, I would never want to be stuck in an office with like limited windows and stuff like that. It was just kind of a basement unit, not many windows, not a lot of light came in. It was very quiet. And I was just like, man, I would never want to work in somewhere like this. So I think I didn't like the environment, but my dad was really cool and he taught me a lot. And, um, then I obviously started in a basement, both my companies and I was like, holy cow, I'm doing the same thing in the basement type unit with no light and all that. <laughs> but it, I didn't care. I wanted to build a company. I, it, that was the least of my concerns. Um, after that, I actually went to Best Buy Oh, nice. And then I went to CompUSA, which went out of business. And Best Buy, I was at Geek Squad. I was actually, but it was called PC Techs then. Okay. okay. PC Technicians. Then Geek Squad was a brand and it really grew up. Yep. Um, so it, obviously I took that experience, went to CompUSA and then did contracting for a while. Like you said, as I got my MCSC, I got my CCNA, Cisco Certified Network Associate worked for Verizon, UUNet, I worked for Robert Half. I jumped on many different contracts within those few years. Um, and then my brother was doing freelance web design and he was like, hey, come host these websites. So I started hosting, he gave me probably two dozen accounts, 20, 30 accounts. And I started right away, I got a server with a company in Texas called Rack Shack. They were in Houston. Nice. And then, um, then I worked with a company in Baltimore called Alabanza. That was my first experience with an all-in-one provider because back in the day, hosting was a panel, which it was cPanel. There was a nickname called panel because it, it basically they used to joke and say cPanel is basically a panel because yep. it was so basic. Um, and then you had the server, then you had someone had to manage the server, then you had to add a billing system. Alabanza was the first company to come and say hosting, um, all the billing, everything, monetization, you know, everything's built in. It was called Domain System Manager, DSM. So I, I paid good money for that server, but it got me off the ground. So I was doing all-in-one hosting in that case, right? Ultimately, I was reselling. But in 2002, 2003, that was totally okay to do. Oh, yeah. And I launched WebNet Hosting in 2000. For honestly, sort of as an experiment, not as an experiment. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put a site up. But I put a site up and people started calling. Seriously, just organically early on, Google started sending me leads because I started putting the meta tags in and the title. Yep. That was good enough for Google to say this site has the basics and it started sending me some traffic. Before you started... Quickly, but okay, before, go ahead, sorry. I, I was just going to ask, um, before we get too far down the, the first entrepreneurial journey... Mm -hmm. um, I always think it's interesting uh, to hear you went to a lot of different places. It sounds like, you know, Geek Squad before it was Geek Squad, mm -hmm. you know, even working for your dad's company before that. Um, were there any kind of key lessons that you learned in those early careers that sort of helped shape how you approached entrepreneurship? 
Yeah, good question, Matt. I got carried away. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. It's, yeah. it's, it's easy to do. And, and it's easy for me to do too, because I obviously I love the entrepreneurial journey. But uh, it's, it's always interesting to see what kinds of tools you, you can add to your backpack before you go on that entrepreneurial quest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I started telling you my whole life story. Okay. But yeah, I, I got excited about that. I appreciate that. Um, I did learn a few key things, to be honest. And one of them, actually, I have a really good memory of. So uh, at my dad's office, he, when you put a motherboard in, the motherboard sits on the actual base of the tower. Okay. So just the tower, a box, metal box. Basically, it has you put in the motherboard on, but it needs a washer underneath, a washer on the top, then it screws in. So these washers, because you're putting in like 16, 18 screws per, you know, per tower. And I was doing, you know, a few a night per se. I would go help my dad on a school night. I was tired. So we're not in the mood per se. Not all <laughs> the time. I wasn't that bad. But you know what I mean? It wasn't the funnest job. So sure. I would just skip on putting these washers in sometimes. And my dad would actually go after I built the whole mother, he would take it all apart and make sure they all had the screw. He did that a few times. Then I learned, I was like, I don't want to make him do that. So I'm going to put all the washers in. But that was a very good lesson for me because for him, delivering that final product to his customer he didn't want a single washer missing. He wanted that thing to be perfect, even though, to be honest, it would have never had an electronic short. It, nothing would have went wrong. It wouldn't have been anything wrong. You couldn't hear any vibrations or anything like that because it was mounted in 14 other screws. So the few that were missing, but he didn't want to risk it. He wanted to deliver a perfect product. So I still follow that model. I would say I'm not a perfectionist. There's certain things that I'm very specific on the way the website works, its responsiveness, certain important things, but I'm also logical with time because I'm limited with that. So we all are, right? So in yeah. that case, I am more particular about giving someone a solid experience. I want them to experience the good. So that's what we do well. Honestly, we did that at WebNet Hosting. We do it at Uscreen well too. We do a good job giving you an all-in-one service. And what I, what I mean by that is it's not just web hosting, billing, website, apps, and a few other things, and marketing tools. It's not just those things. It's that we offer good service. I give good onboarding. I have good sales. I try and cover multiple aspects of the spectrum or the whole thing, the A to Z. Of yep. course, there's a lot of gaps, you know, that we're still like learning and there's a lot that happens that falls apart. But I try and offer that full experience because you want to give something complete to someone. You know, it's SaaS, yeah. the whole experience. Did you ever have an experience in those um, early jobs where that, that kind of like a, was a ball that got dropped and you had to kind of recover from that? Uh, yeah, let's think. Well, CompUSA had a tough boss. Darren was his name. I don't remember his last name. He was a tough guy. He was just big guy. And um, he was a smoker. So he had a really thick voice. He was probably in his early 40s. He was a tough guy. He really was. And I don't think any of us being young at the tech, you know, in the technical uh, space of CompUSA liked working with him. <laughs> so I probably dropped the ball a few times, but he was quick to react and there was nothing missing. He was an awesome manager. So I learned a lot from him. I remember when awesome? he first, I think what made him awesome is he was strict. He was, he was strict in a way that wasn't um, intrusive per se. Like it, it, he wasn't annoying, but he was on point. I think that's mm. what made him good. He was on point with everything that he did. 
Yeah. He was a go-getter. He was fast. He worked hard. He hustled. And it was clear to see that he hustled. Um, and as soon as he came in, there was a lot of slow pokes and people that should have been removed a while back. He removed them. You know, and I was early on. I was like, why is he removing people and stuff like that? But sometimes managers that come in, they want to reshape stuff. And it, ultimately, it's a business. It's not a charity. Right. And honestly, CompUSA went out of business 10 years later, and it was still bleeding money then, too. So they had no choice to do that. But he was just, he was a hustler. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it, and it sounds like in the moment, uh, maybe it was a little bit annoying, quote unquote, but long term, uh, it sounds like kind of grew to respect that sort of on-pointness and hustle that he had and brought to the culture there. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It was awesome. I learned a lot from it. Yeah, sounds like it. Well, and it's, it's cool to hear your recounting of the early days, um, at least earlier days of web hosting and sort of that explosion of, I mean, it really sounds like you were right place, right time in a lot of ways of just being one of the companies that has a website on Google that has meta tags. And because you're one of just a few um, and you've got a good product and service um, with a focus on customer service, I imagine the, the orders just kind of kept rolling in. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I'm going to, I'll clarify on that a little bit. It's actually sure. a really good point. The first six months, I probably gained 30, 40 accounts, not a lot, but they were 10, $20 a month. And I was a 23 year old kid. So I was pretty excited. <laughs> a lot of people might hear that now, including the way we run our company. That's not a lot of money for a SaaS, but sure. I was 23, 24. There was I don't think people realize how lucky they are now because everyone, the youth trying to get into startup or software or SaaS, there's so much free information on how to do marketing, how to run a company. There's so many different incubators. There was not a single incubator in DC, right? When I started in 2002, 2003, 2004. In fact, people were like, how old are you? So, <laughs> you know, there was a lack of resources. There's no doubt about that. The tables turned for sure, completely different, 180 degrees now. But um, with that being said, I got my first 30, 40 accounts pretty easily, but I mm -hmm. will tell you the next 10, 12 years after that, I really worked hard. I didn't, I was never given a single account. In fact, we definitely hit a hardship towards the end of WebNet where I decided I want to go in another company and I want to get growth that, um, you know, it was getting harder and harder because hosting was starting to die from a small company standpoint. GoDaddy was there, they're paying. You know, right now, if you Google web hosting, pay-per-click is, you know, 40, 70, 80 bucks per click. So we couldn't compete. Yeah. Uh, we still got, you know, got into different niches and stuff that helped us grow, but it was never a handout, honestly. Yeah. It was a grind. I grinded the first few years, got the business to six, 700,000 a year ARR, right? Mm -hmm. So it was doing, um, is doing about 50, 60 K of MRR. And I run it really lean the first five, six years. I did support myself for the first four or five years. And, um, I, I made good money with it, but I also learned that I was very immature to not be able to scale it. If I had, you know, the maturity that I have now or the way that I see running a company, it could have been 20 times, 30 times bigger than it, what it was. Because ultimately when I sold it, I think we had 3,500, 4,000 accounts, something like that. And a lot of them were shared small accounts. So, um, or actually it might've been four or 5,000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them were four or five, $6 accounts. If you were able to go back in time and do it again with the knowledge that you have now, what are one or two key things that you would have done differently 
to maximize the value of that business. Yeah, that that's it. Almost hurts thinking about that because the it was complete land grab the first three three years of web hosting. There yeah. was a land grab. There's no doubt about it. Um, I definitely captured some business pretty easily, but it was a complete land grab. What I would have done differently is number one, I would have move to scale it. Very simple. I would have hired someone to do sales, at least outreach, because that's the way I did B2B outreach to other resellers and web designers like my brother to get them on board as a reseller. Um, and then the other thing I would have done is hired another support person. So I wasn't there answering tickets all the time. Yeah. So I would get, I would delegate. That's the two things I would have done instantly. Would you have raised money? No, I wouldn't have raised money. I just don't think like that. It's just okay. the way I was brought up. I was brought up not to loan money, you know, not even from my parents. We didn't raise money on Uscreen right now. And we have an awesome profit margin and we're growing too. So I don't believe you have to raise money to make money. I think there's enough opportunity. I just think raising money for some various reasons, it's clear, uh, got really cool and popular really fast. Almost raising money is like a race itself. It is. Can you imagine spending those first one, two years of your really most important time trying to raise money rather than running the company? So no, I don't, I, I wouldn't have raised money. Yeah, it's a real challenge. It can be a real challenge for sure. I, uh, so tell me about Uscreen. How, why did you decide to start that company? Where did the big idea come from? You know, I, maybe even take me back there. You know, you're seeing that the web hosting space is getting really, really crowded how did you make the decision to leave that business and look for a bigger opportunity? Yeah, good question. So WebNet hosting, I had it for about 12 years. Okay, 2004, and I sold it in 17, 2017. So there's no doubt in hosting, when I was getting a bit older in my early 30s or late 20s, 29, 30 years old, I was like, okay, I got to move this company forward. You know, we're flatline, we're at a million bucks, we, uh, ARR, we got to move it forward. So I hired this really smart, marketing guy named Bonnie, who I'm still friends with. He came in, we started doing a lot of thinking and looking at pricing. And we had these three big whiteboards in our office. And we really sat down for a good two years together, a year and a half and worked really hard. And we gained some accounts and we actually got into niches because I got most of my accounts from e-commerce hosting. Mm. I connected a shopping cart to the web hosting and allowed people to sell. So just think Shopify, but yeah. on a web hosting level, Shopify yeah. SaaS, we were more like, all right, connect these two components and call it a SaaS per se. So I got into that with video. I connected video. I connected other shopping carts. I got a really good customer called Poker Strategy. They're still around actually. And um, they are in uh, Gibraltar, right? South of Spain. So they're still around. So they, they came and we, they used our streaming server. I worked with a streaming media server that's still around. It's called Wowza. And it encodes videos and delivers via CDN. So they was doing video on demand and live. And I was like, you know what? So, I wonder if there's a... Uh -huh. so, so can you slow it down just for a minute to, um, for those who don't know the acronym CDN, maybe just to explain what that is, the 20 second version? Yeah, yeah. So CDN is Content Delivery Network. All the Netflix, YouTube, everyone pretty much uses CDNs nowadays, but primarily video. My server in Virginia, for example, we use AWS now, but at the time, you know, it's hard for that server to deliver video, transport it from Virginia all the way to Japan. So what happens is a CDN like Akamai or Fastly will store that video in their thousands of servers and then deliver it to the 
you know, so if someone's in Japan, it goes to the Tokyo data center. So content delivery network, it's ultimately caching. So what happens right now, Netflix, the people that watch house of cards a lot, for example, will that one series get stored in cash all around the server. And then when someone in Japan, you know, goes, it goes to the Tokyo data center rather than literally coming all the way to Virginia and pulling that one file. So that's what a CDN does. So that's the magic behind the scenes. Okay. Now, now take us back to poker strategies and uh, what, what made them a good client? Yeah. Poker strategy. Well, one, they had money. They were making money, sure. right? They were making money and they paid well. And they basically needed a reliable video on demand live streaming service. Mm. And they used this piece of like basic dashboard that we gave them with Wowza to be able to kind of upload their videos. And then they did everything on their WordPress site and they even embedded the player themselves. So they had enough knowledge to do that. They were early on early adopters for sure of just streaming in general. Yeah. What I thought to myself is there's really no good way to sell videos, monetize, build a catalog apps came later and be able to sell subscriptions, one-time courses and all that stuff. There really wasn't, there was Vimeo on demand, which is still around. They take 10%, but it's shared. They hold your money. So I looked around and all that stuff. There was a few basic services. One of them was around, it's called pivot share and they sold, um, and they took a 30% rev share, 30%. And it was wow. a very basic software, but they did a good job initially. I give them a lot of respect early on. So I basically um, was like, there's not many opportunities out there. So let me build something basic. And I actually got really excited because I had cash flow coming from WebNet. And I, I hired a local guy in DC at another WeWork, the first WeWork in Chinatown, actually, and hired him and he started building stuff. And um, I put it out there six months. I had a proof of concept. Six months, early 2015. How much did so, you invest in that original proof of concept? Yeah, that's a good question. We invested actually a good amount and I made a mistake. What happened is my first, the first proof of concept was probably about $80,000. Mm -hmm. Okay. Within the first 18 months of me only, no other employee, we spent about $240,000 of wow. cash. Wow. So that was funneled in from WebNet, obviously. Some of it I even took from the savings account and funneled it in and, and built it. So in that case, if I didn't have that money, I would have needed funding because I got to market six to eight months with a basic alpha product that I sold to this lady that still works with us, Christine Bullock, this LA based fitness lady and nice. another swimming academy joined us in our first year called Total Immersion. He was selling DVDs. He had a very basic embeddable Wistia player. And he's like, Hey, I want the apps. I want to do subscription. And I put them on a very basic, almost broken platform. So think about that. I got a proof of concept built within six to eight months, pretty much selling it on the phone myself really fast from the time I had the idea. Yeah. That speed to market. Remember, speed is a market advantage. There's no doubt. I got to market quickly. I heard it. I listened. I kept innovating and I just moved forward. There was a few competitors that absolutely came and went out because yeah. initially it's very difficult. And also this I learned for the first time that Uscreen was an early adopter in the technology of what they call now OTT over the top, which is the apps and video monetization because YouTube has a lot of free content. People five years ago are like, I don't need to pay for content. It's on YouTube. Now they're like, okay, so I go one place I pay, I have all my videos and I don't see any ads. It's not even a question. Right. So 
in that aspect, we were early adopters. So there was a lot of people that were like, well, do I really need that? What's the advantage? I could just sell a course on something like Teachable. You know, we're completely different than that setup. So it, you had to have thick skin to get through that. But now that the market's caught up and we have the product and we've listened for the last five years, we've really gained some traction. So talk to me about that. What did you hear when you initially took that product to market and said, like, you listened before you built it, and then you launched it, and you continue to listen for the next five years. What were some of those initial things, biggest learnings that you had when you first took the product to market? Yeah, um, we made a lot of mistakes, Matt, big time. So, you know, what's interesting is I'll tell you, like, we made a lot of mistakes. One of them, when I spent that 100, 150,000, the first six, eight months, one year building that proof of concept, in my 20th month, second year or so, I hired my CTO, who's my CTO now. I hired a full-time developer in-house because I was consulting it before. And he came in and within a week, we trashed the first version. So imagine you spend all that money building that code and it ultimately is trashed. But I actually didn't see it that way, to be honest. For a moment, I thought about it. You know, that's why I bring it up. But I didn't see it like that. I looked at it as an education. I got an mm -hmm. education. I spent hundred K. I got an education. I got something to the market. I made a few hundred dollars, a thousand a month from it. MRR. I was that a grand or so 20 months more than easily. It was more than that. I think, yeah, I think 20th month we were at 13, 1400 bucks MRR. So I was making 13, $1,400 MRR 20 months in, I got an education. So what was the mistake that I made? I think one mistake that I made that helped me, but also hurt me is I got really excited. I got excited. I built really fast building fast is a mistake because mm. you don't hear what people are saying. Software, I'll tell you, is really complicated to build because yeah. it's software is made for a specific purpose. Yes, there's Salesforce. It's very customizable. All this stuff, API, they don't have a lot of direct competitors. They do, but not at that level. In that case, what happens is if you if software has a purpose. So if you don't build for that specific market and purpose, it's going to be hard to use. So for us, easy example on the Uscreen website, the first two years, if you went, it said online courses, membership, subscription sites, employee training. Mm. We don't advertise that anymore. We're not for employee training. Okay. So we're for a membership site. You can absolutely build a membership site, sell your courses, one-time sales, teacher training, all that stuff. You can do that. And there's a few customers that even do internal employee training, but we're not the best fit for that. Yep. We're a membership platform. So how you build it, who you build it for, and exactly every feature, if it works for your ideal customers, the number one answer or question you should ask yourself when you're building a software. Yeah, that's great. Who, who is your number one customer? Uh, and what was the big um, aha that made you realize like this was the market you needed to go and serve? Because um, I'm trying to think like it, it it was clear that software as a service was a great model, but by this point, you know, I'm thinking five, four or five years ago, but how did you start to see the opportunity in membership sites and to be that platform that enables those membership sites to charge and, and host great video content? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, few indicators. Well, the customers absolutely were going the route of subscriptions, the membership economy. So that's definitely yep. one of them. Okay. We knew everything's going membership. 
Yep. Two, we knew video was on the rise, right? Video first comes out, it's YouTube, it's free. Then people are going to want to make money for it. I got a camera set up right back there. It's hard shooting and creating videos. You got to get paid for it. Yes, there's, you know, YouTube AdSense and stuff. There's not a lot of money in that. You need a lot of views to make three, five, eight, ten grand a month. It's like 1% of YouTubers reach that point. Maybe a few percent, but it's not high. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard work. So the other, that was the other indicator that I knew people were looking to make money with video. I knew recurring was the way. I also knew that the competition was coming in that aspect as well. And you could see that. You could see that there was other names playing with the content, trying to rank for it and all that. So, you know, I knew that the competition was looking to come this route because video has always been expensive, mm -hmm. right? And when you help someone launch a business, you're not just a tool, you are their business. Right. So in that aspect, we're an all in one. And that's one thing I did early on, Matt, is I wanted to build something all in one. Because when I looked at the market in 2015, late 14, I saw that there was tools that did one or the other. One tool does analytics. The other tool does the apps. The other tool gives you a website. The other tool you connect and it does billing, right? Yeah. But I knew the average customer, I came from e-commerce hosting, has no idea how to set up, set up a storefront. So if this was going to go mainstream, people needed an all-in-one solution. You know, it's like, it's kind of like the, the, the same concept as Shopify for e-commerce. You're kind of given the all in one. Here's absolutely. how to run a video subscription business. Yeah. So see, that's a good example. Shopify I learned a lot from to this day. We want to be the Shopify for video streaming distribution and monetization. And honestly, I think we're going there. Yeah. The market's trying to prove that. It's starting to prove that obviously well, and Shopify you, is a universe, but you know, Hey, we aim for the stars too. Absolutely. Well, and you, you've got a, a bunch of customers. I'm, I'm just looking at your, your website now. Um, who are some of the kind of key customers or clients that at least you're able to talk about at Ustream? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, a few good ones, for example, like Yoga with Adrian. She has a channel called Find What Feels Good. She's the biggest fitness YouTuber. I think she's second biggest. So she's five and a half million. The biggest, I think, is another channel that's like I've definitely, six I've definitely done some yoga with Adrian classes with my girlfriend. Nice, nice. See, yeah, everyone. Sorry, fiance. I just proposed the other week with my oh, fiance. Nice. Congrats. Yeah, nice. thank you. Congrats, congrats. Okay, so um, yoga with Adrian's on you screen. Cool. Yep, yep. Another um, audio mixing, um, producing type company is called Fader Pro. They're pretty cool. FaderPro.com. Yeah. Yep. And then um, Wanderlust is another fitness one. That's big boy. That's got a few hundred thousand users on our platform. Nice. Leadercast is leadership videos, a lot of B2B. Um, there's a lot of stuff. There's HRD leaders. That's another B2B HR training type company. Lots of online courses. Magic Stream is a cool one. Magicstream.com. That's the Netflix of magic. They do extremely well. Cool. A lot of fitness, a lot of e-learning. There's definitely some Netflix stuff. There's like nothing else on TV. There's indie film hustle. Um, there's a good amount of like entertainment too. I'd say it's about 25% of our audience, but definitely e-learning, educational content, lots of fitness. Um, and then there's a lot of like YouTube stuff that has a good following that 
they want to build their own community. It could be a history, like real-time history just joined us. Really big history channel based on a lot of stuff, World War II in Germany, that they're launching their own. Remember, Uscreen helps you build a community. You launch premium content for that community. That community right now on YouTube, you don't own. It's just a subscriber box. You don't know their email. YouTube can demonetize you or lower your video at any moment. That's starting to happen. That's when people are like, oh my God, this is all my revenue, all my money. I've made a full-time job out of this. I don't even know their emails. That's happening all the time. Kids content's the same, right? They're being demonetized. They need to go on the kids channel, all that stuff. So people want a community for a premium channel for their audience because YouTube, you're going to see all the related videos, competitors, and all that stuff. So talk to me about um, some of the traits of the most successful companies, the ones that you've named here that are you know, the biggest ones in these categories that are using mm -hmm. Ustream to monetize their audience. What are some of those similarities um, of the very best companies in each industry? What makes them successful at creating a video subscription business? Yeah, absolutely. With Uscreen, for example, some of the customers that do extremely well on our platform, I would say don't complicate it. So the ones that come right away and they want to customize heavily. So they're like, hey, Uscreen, this is awesome. We really want to use you guys, but we want to customize the front end. We want to customize the back end. We want to use the API. Most of the time they fail. They put too much time and they do stuff. They put the CTAs in different locations. They customize the look and feel. We've run heat maps literally with over 1,000 live customers. We yeah. know where to put the buttons. We know what works. So they start customizing all that stuff and then they get worse conversions in that case. That happens all the time. Well, and they're and spending they spend their time, time on, they're spending their time yeah. on things that aren't core to their business. That's a great insight. Yeah, exactly. So the, too much. Yeah, they're spending six months, they're spending nine months, and they're spending a lot of money. Yeah. Someone can come into a venture. They're like, okay, I produce content. I know what I'm doing. I'm investing $1,000 to get started, or I'm spending 50 grand or 100 grand. That happens all the time. We have a lot of worship, faith-based content. They have some deep pockets. There's a lot of customers with deep pockets, but they spend that 20, 30, 50K doing custom development initially. That yeah. happens actually a lot. We're getting a lot of customers from WordPress. They use Memberful or Member Mouse and they come, they spent 10, 20K with a developer. They had a lot of problems with finding on Upwork. Then they come to Uscreen and they're like, hey, this is too much work. We just found you guys and this is a blessing. How does this work? So we're yeah. like, it's all in one. You plug and play. The plug and play people succeed because the formula yeah. we have works. And it's focusing on your differentiator, which is the content. Yeah. That's absolutely right. That makes sense. Well, talk to me a little bit about um, this ecosystem. I, I want to make sure we have some time to talk a little bit about DC area. I know it's just exploded with opportunity in the tech space recently. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've seen, you know, from living there at age seven to selling your first company to now growing Uscreen? Yeah, absolutely. DC is a cool place now. First, DC was never, it wasn't safe. Um, it, it really wasn't. There was a lot of crime here and stuff like that. I didn't experience that too much. We grew up in Maryland, but I would come out to go out and hang out restaurants and stuff in DC. And it, the memory that I had of DC in the 90s and early 2000s was it was just dark. The lights were off everywhere. It was just dark, except for the DuPont Georgetown area has always been nice. But the more you went east, it was just dark place. Um, but now it's crazy. So DC's changed completely. So the mayor started pumping in money 
literally it was the year late 90s or I would say 2000, 2001. For the last 20 years, DC has been full blast being redeveloped, right? So in that aspect, DC is extremely now tech friendly, right? And you got the government, so there's a lot of money, there's a lot of consulting, but then the, the tech scene is also icing on the cake. So more and more people are coming for the tech scene, for example, and there's a lot of jobs around tech. With that being said, salaries are very high. It's very hard to find local talent. Honestly, you got Amazon I out there now too, right? There's Amazon. Yeah. And those things actually make it harder for the average company because um, it, they, you know, it just gets people excited and they ask for a lot of money. You have a lot of job jumpers here in DC. When you look for local talent, they're always job, jumping jobs. Remember the government, unfortunately, and I've worked in the government as a contractor, uh, gets ripped off a lot per se from contractors in tech because they don't exactly know what they're selling. They have these big contracts. There's eight a set asides, all these different set asides, and they charge a lot of money to offer services that are mediocre. So what that does is to the average employee, the youth employee the, that's working in tech is it gives them an ego that I can literally charge 40, 50, 60, $80 an hour, do a mediocre job, jump around, go to Deloitte, go to Accenture. So there's that downside too. But then again, if you go to LA and you speak to some of the tech companies there, they say, yeah, people get up late here. They're hanging out too late at night. So that happens everywhere. You know what I mean? So you just got to find the right people. That's why we hire remote. It's really easy to find people really fast um, and good people so you can filter, right? But that doesn't mean DC doesn't have any good talent. So DC is moving forward. A lot of tech happening here. There's a really good incubator that I actually work part-time out of and I've met some mentors there and it was 1776, which you're also familiar with like Donna Harris and a few other guys I've met there or ladies. So that there's definitely some opportunity here as well. I actually left DC for about six weeks and I went to New York and worked out of a, we work there, the one in Soho West it's called because I knew there was a lot of content creators and publishers in New York. And I was like, that might be a better place for me to start. And this was 2015, October of 2015. So I went there and I actually looked around, spent six weeks there in a WeWork. And I was like, this place is not for me. There's too much FinTech here. Everything is expensive, um, too much hype. DC is actually better because it's the younger brother and people pay attention more. So I came here, joined 1776 part-time met a few good people and that really helped me move forward. So that was a good move. Nice. Nice. What are you most excited about right now um, at Uscreen or in DC or just in technology as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. I think technology is absolutely at the beginning. There's no doubt. There's opportunity everywhere. There, it's, if, there's no doubt. It is not easy to build software right now, right? It, it will get easier in the future, but there'll be a lot more competition. So there's so much opportunity in tech right now. It's unbelievable. So if you know how to build a company or you can figure it out, which most people can, you get in, it's a puzzle, you don't give up, you just hustle. Then in that aspect, there's a lot of opportunity. You name it in every single avenue of software, there's opportunity. There's more people coming online to watch, to listen, to read. And there's so much, so much resources. So in that aspect, there's so much opportunity and I invite people to try it out, but building good software is really difficult. We've had half a dozen competitors come in, not do a good job and leave, 
or just stay small. Um, initially, everybody gains a little bit of business, right? But then the, the good ones really prosper with the, with the good name. So I'm excited to really grow the company. We've built something really solid. Our software is pretty awesome. And competitor, the users that are with competitors, they come and they're like, this is amazing. So we like that. But we want to stay humble and paranoid to continue to build software that we're pr proud of so we can get ahead and grow in 2021 because what the work that we've done so far is going to move us so far and we want to continue to move in that aspect. So I'm excited for growth. I'm excited for health and all the other good stuff that's happening and so much opportunity and tech. It's awesome. I don't think it's ever going to be this prime to have this much opportunity and tech. Honestly, this is prime time the next three to five years. I like it, man. I'm excited too. And I, I appreciate you sharing some of your story with us here today. Hopefully we can have you back on the show sometime and uh, get an update for everything at Uscreen. Awesome. I would love that, Matt. Yeah, really, really good pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, PJ. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thank you to PJ Tai for coming on the show. Be sure to check him out at Uscreen at uscreen.tv. And for links to his social profiles and all the other people, companies, and resources mentioned in this episode, head on over to powderkeg.com and check out the show notes. While you're there, maybe uh, check out some of our other episodes coming up and join for one of our Powder Keg live episodes, and you can ask your own questions. You can find all that information at powderkeg.com slash events, where we have so many great guests coming up from all over the world talking about topics that are hyper relevant right now. So check out powderkeg.com slash events and go ahead and sign up. Make sure you reserve your spot so you can get your questions answered live on the show. And if you're currently in the market for finding a new role and want to be connected to cutting edge companies, you can join the matches platform at powderkeg.com slash jobs. As I mentioned, we're recording this intro and outro during a global pandemic. We have had so many people coming into the powder keg community saying that they just got laid off or referring their friend who just got laid off as part of what seems to be a, an economic downturn. Not seems to be. It's definitely an economic downturn. Um, I am super passionate and our whole team is super passionate about helping these people get plugged into a job where they can really thrive as quickly as possible. So if you know someone or you yourself are looking for a new role, go on over to powderkeg.com jobs and apply for the matches platform. Totally free and we'll connect you directly with decision makers uh, to hopefully connect you with the job you love. And to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders in areas outside Silicon Valley, please give us a subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already, powderkeg.com slash iTunes. We'll catch you next time on the Powder Keg Podcast.